So you're here, maybe you're here for the first time, and uh, we've been through that reading, and you're thinking, wow, what's going on? What, what are we reading here? You might have been coming along fairly regularly, and we come to that reading, and you think, what's going on here? You've got at least one advantage to realize that we're working through a series. Uh, step by step, we're looking at the life of Jacob and understanding what's gone on in his life and how we might understand from it and come to terms with it and see how it teaches us about Jesus and the message of the Bible. I'll be honest with you, there are times when preaching regularly through a series of texts, you end up confronted with something where you really, really wish that you could just skip it and say, let's not do that, we'll move on to the next chapter, because it's far more comfortable. Today is one of those days. And yet at the same time, one of the things that challenges me and one of the things that in a sense comforts me when we come to terms and and we start to read a chapter like this is that we are reminded that the Bible does not shirk from the gritty reality of human life and human experience. It doesn't shirk from it. It doesn't back away. It doesn't give you this this picture as though life is all beautiful and life is all great and kind of, uh, you know, cloudy and beauty and all kind of... saw somebody say something um, on uh, their their strapline at the end of a forum comment was, uh, if in doubt, add glitter. (laughs) Bible doesn't do that, does it? It doesn't make awful things glittery and nice in some way. It confronts us with the reality. Now, when we work through uh, section by section the life of somebody in the Bible, it forces us. It confronts us and says to us, we've got to deal with this issue. I think very often, to be honest, maybe the church has been uh, delinquent in backing away from uncomfortable subjects like this. It's been delinquent because it's not been willing to, uh, to deal with this publicly and in this kind of context and say, well, how does this work? How does this fit in to the storyline of the Bible when all said and done, if God is the author of the Bible, why has he allowed this to be part of it? Why has he allowed this to be part of his people's experience, and therefore something for us to be confronted with today. And so in one sense, I step into this particular subject with fear and trembling, and yet at the same time, I step in with a confidence to say, the church needs to be dealing with issues like this, particularly when this particular passage has been used so unhelpfully down through the centuries, so um, in such a damaging way, and has been the source where many people have said, well, if that's what God is like, if that's what the Bible is like, then I don't want anything to do with it. So I'm really pleased that we are forced to deal with something I don't want to deal with. So let's have a look at the basic narrative. Jacob has come back to the land that God has promised him. That's the first point 
that we're reminded of. Jacob has come back to the land that God has said will be his inheritance. So he's not as though he's come back to, he's just kind of doing his own thing, but he's come back to that land. We find that while he is there, we see in the early part of um, the, the, the chapter, his daughter, in fact, you might have noticed a few weeks ago when we looked through the lineage or the, the, the children of Jacob, you might have noticed that there are all of the sons are mentioned. That kind of fits in with the ancient world and something that we dealt with last time in terms of primogeniture, the idea of the male kind of lead, that ancient concept. So all of the sons are mentioned and yet there is this one daughter mentioned. That's interesting, isn't it? Dinah. We find Dinah as the daughter mentioned here We realize why. (laughs) Because what we see is that Dinah, the daughter of Leah, goes into uh, the nearby city of Shechem. Quick pause here. We read the word city. And and our thoughts go to Leeds or London or Manchester or one of the other great cities of, uh, of, of this country. City in the ancient world would have been virtually a a kind of gathering of a small group of people that might have been surrounded by some kind of barricade or wall. City was not necessarily a huge gathering of people. So when we read about later on about the city being routed by two men, we can see that actually that's not some kind of wild, wacky idea. The sheer scale that we're talking about is something very different to our concept of city. But what we see is that uh, Dinah goes to visit uh, the women of the land of Shechem. While she is out there visiting, she is seen uh, by Shechem, the son of Hamar. And on seeing her, he lusts after her, he takes her, he rapes her. Having raped her, he then bizarrely and in a twisted kind of way decides that what he actually does is loves her uh, and then he decides to enforce this love on his father and demands that his father gets this woman to be his wife. He goes then to to Jacob who has done nothing, said nothing to the sons has not responded particularly. And the sons, in fact, the featured sons, Simeon and Levi, the two brothers of Dinah, take the lead in the conversation. And they use um, the cultic tradition, the religious tradition that God had delivered to his people, the, cult, the tradition of circumcision, to be a trick to get all of the men of the city to be circumcised. And while they are still recovering from circumcision for all of the men of the city, they go in, they slaughter all of the men of the city, and they take Dinah back along with all of the possessions and the wives and children, and they enlarge their possessions. That is the storyline. <laughs> you think, Whoa. 
What do we, how do we possibly respond to that? The first thing that we have a tendency to do when we're confronted with something like this is we, try, we say, well, this is about the Bible, isn't it? This is about us trying to work out, well, who's right and who's wrong? <laughs> That's one of our first kind of ports of call, isn't it? How do we work out who's right? Because surely somebody must be right in this story. It's one of the first things that we tend to do. So let's take it step by step. Because I think what we're actually convinced of when we take it step by step is we realize that nobody comes out of this well. Nobody comes out of this well. First thing we see is Shechem. I was reading one or two uh, commentaries. There was one which actually quite made me feel quite uncomfortable. Um, the, the, the tone was something like this. Uh, Shechem um, mistreats her, rapes her, but then um, wants, and the words that were used, wants to make an honest woman of her by marrying her. I, I want to say straight off the bat, I think what we see in Shechem is the reality of the twisted relationship response that we see in broken humanity. That's what we see. It's not actually, he he claims later on we see that uh, having defiled her, uh, he then goes to his father and says, I want her to be uh, my wife because I love her. He He speaks to her gently. There is no gentleness, really, in that. There is no true relationship. There is manipulation. There is power. There is the horrific attitude of male behavior towards female behavior, which has been at the heart of the crisis of our relationships throughout the history of the world. When we read his response, which says um, he, he loved the young woman, spoke tenderly to her, he is twisted and broken and wrong in that response. So straight, straight off the bat, I think that's what we see. This is not a right response. It is a twisted, broken response in Shechem. Secondly, we see what, what's going on. He goes, to, um, he goes to his father and he says, get me this woman. And his father then enters into a negotiation. He enters into a negotiation. There is not one moment where Hamor says, whoa, hang on a sec, what have you done? There is nothing that pauses in the narrative and stops and confronts Shechem. So what we see is Hamor as well is, in a sense, on the one hand he is again reinforcing the problem of the ancient world and the problem of the brokenness of humanity. 
and the challenge of the relationship between the sexes, he sees this brokenness and he he enters into and becomes, in a sense, complicit in the crisis by entering into negotiation to try to get Dinah to be the wife of his rebellious, horrific, violent son. Who does he speak to? Look at verse 5. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing until they came home. The right response is to scream and to shout and to berate and to respond in a way which immediately raises this to the true crisis that it actually is. He waits until his sons come back from the fields. There is nothing that ever elevates this to the true crisis that it actually is. It's the sons who come back. And we see in verse 6, then Shechem's father uh, Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields. As soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious. Look at the contrast that the narrator presents to us. On the one hand, there is the ineffective father. And it is the sons who in some sense, who in some sense, are actually responding appropriately. They are shocked and furious. (laughs) What a contrast. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is it presents to us people like Jacob who are described as faithful, who are described as ultimately godly, who are described as being people who are in the line of God's inheritance. They are God's people and yet they live broken, inconsistent, messed up lives. Jacob does not respond appropriately. You know, we've seen this man growing in maturity step by step, haven't we? We've saw last, t- last few weeks how he, he has wrestled with God and he has, he has reached the point where his life has become a life where he is more connected to God and now we see him, if you like, retreating back, dropping back. That is our Christian experience. It is the reality of steps forward and steps backwards and progressing and retreating and failing and falling. And yet what we see in this is that it is God who is consistently faithful and holding on to Jacob even when he is not living and behaving appropriately. Isn't that, in one sense, isn't it confronting of Jacob and at the same time, isn't it encouraging that that is what God is like? Even when we are not doing what we ought to do, even when our appropriate uh, responses are not uh, delivered, even if when we are not living faithfully, when we are taking those steps backwards, when we are falling and failing, 
God keeps a hold of us and keeps a guide on this man. And that's what we actually ultimately see, which we'll see in a few minutes as it, as it unfolds. Jacob, in a sense, lacks faith. He becomes more fearful of the response of the Shechemites and the Perizzites than he does of seeing right and wrong. What we actually then see in the brothers is a hugely vengeful response. Not only that, but they actually use something which is a precious, um, God-given religious mark, the mark of circumcision, which was identified first to Abraham, their great-great-grandfather, Jacob's grandfather, as a mark of God's covenant people. They used that as a mechanism to trick Shechem and the rest of the city. And, And then, while they are recovering, this vengeful response by the brothers results in all of the men of the city being slaughtered and everything being taken. There is a portrait here of hideous humanity. In one sense, on a human level, on a purely human level, nobody comes out of this well. This is not a place where we're able to say, there's the right, there's the wrong, there's the good, there's the bad. There is a notable, in all of this, if you've, if you've seen it, there is a notable lack of connection with the God who Jacob trusts in. God is not mentioned in this account. Where is God, we might ask? When we reach that point... And we're looking at this and we're still thinking, well, what do, we, what do we do therefore with this chapter? How do we come to this horrific occasion and find some sort of gold? Can we mine gold out of this? Is there something about Jesus? Is there something about the gospel? Why is it here? I want to suggest there are two things that we can do. First thing is that we can actually see glimmers of grace. Now, that's going to take some working through, which is what we're going to do. We can see glimmers of grace. And secondly, we hear this chapter through the first hearers of this account. Those two things. I want to encourage you um, when we are confronted with horrific Bible passages like this, particularly the Old Testament, those two tools are really helpful in us understanding how this sits within the story of God's redeeming, saving power in the world. So firstly, how do we see glimmers of grace? One of the things that we firstly see is that the behavior of Shechem, the behavior of Hamor, 
and the behavior of Jacob all combined reinforce a broken relationship between men and women. One of the things that we see, and we know it not from the Bible alone, we know it from the whole of history. What we actually see is that there has been a consistent uh, misogynistic attitude of men towards women. Women throughout the ancient world, in most cases, with a few exceptions, women were second-rate, women were possessions, women were objects of use. And yet what we see is a little glimmer. There is something that has come in which suggests something else. It's words that are used by the brothers. Uh, And they say something, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter. An outrageous thing in Israel. Now, that gives us two hints. Firstly, that could read in a couple of ways. Firstly, it could read that they had done an outrageous thing towards Israel. Or it could also suggest that there was an establishing, there was a growing recognition that little steps, tiny steps, steps which suggest this kind of behavior is absolutely wrong. It is deplorable. It is a shift. It's a little kick us into a new direction. A little suggestion that says within Israel, within the people under the banner of Israel, Jacob as he was, now Israel who becomes the father of this nation, there is a different attitude emerging. This is deplorable. This is wrong. It's going to take hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years for those little steps to continue to move and to progress and to continue to journey. But those little steps, they're seeds sown way back here, which is essentially this. This is wrong. This is not the way to treat another person. This is not the way to treat somebody who I might just happen to be physically stronger than. There is a a little moment which knocks us off course. And God's people find that knocking off course and that deplorable behavior the start of a journey which revolutionizes and changes and reshapes attitudes and behaviors. Now, I want to suggest to you, when we come to this, we see that kind of seed idea, we see that kind of thought idea brought to us in the ancient world. It it was different. It was a different way of living. It's not the complete story. It's not the best of ways. But at least it takes us on a, 
slightly different trajectory. A trajectory which ultimately has caused all sorts of massive, dramatic changes in the world. Changes of attitude, changes of thinking, which the message of the Bible and the the message of um, the redemptive work of God has caused that kind of change in all sorts of different areas. I'll give you one example. You are really hard-pressed. You are really hard-pressed in the Bible to make a convincing argument to say that slavery is wrong, really wrong. Because again and again in the ancient world we see references to slavery in the Bible. Apart from this, on every occasion we see that attitudes are different to the world around. Do you know that ancient Israel had cities that were built where slaves could run to for safety? That was, that was mind-blowing, where slaves could run to for safety. Something that was so remarkably different for the ancient world, something which began the journey of knocking us off course, of making us think differently, of taking us on a, a new way of thinking. Now, maybe what we're seeing here is just that. It's not perfect, but at least it's a step where God's people are saying, do you know what? There is a new way of thinking. There is a new attitude. This is deplorable. It's messy. But let's start thinking differently. There are seeds of grace. (laughs) The other thing that we would say, for all of the horrific response of Dinah's sons, sorry, Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi, for all of the over-response, what it does point us in the direction of is confronting this, that we are, in some sense, collectively responsible for the outrages of our community when we stand back and don't do anything about them. There is a sense in which there is a collective responsibility for Hamor, for those others who have not intervened, those other men who have not taken Shechem to task. There is a, for, uh, that does not justify, but at least it points in a direction that says this kind of society cannot be lived with. You know, we might have all sorts of challenges with the democracy that we live in. There might be all sorts of problems, and I, I, you know them, I know them. We might have all sorts of issues. But we do not live in a dictatorship. We do live in a world, at least in our country at this point in time, where there is some sense in, of, of collective accountability and responsibility. We hold that responsibility when we decide collectively in a democracy what is right and what is wrong. And it is not 
one voice which dictates power over all. There's a journey that the world has taken. David Wells puts it brilliantly when he says, what we see throughout history is God's gentling of the world. A world which by nature is violent and corrupt, where the powerful win and the weak and the broken are simply open to be used and abused. Thank God that we see little moments where the world is knocked off course and reshaped. So that's the first thing. We might see glimmers, glimmers of grace. Secondly, who first had this story captured and recounted to them? Where we actually first see this captured is where God's people, years later, have been in Egypt. They've been held captive and they are coming back into the land. And what are they told? They are told this. God says to his people, I'll establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the desert to the Euphrates River. I'll give them into your hands, the people who live in the land, they will, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me. Because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. The first hearers are God's people going back into that land who are reminded of this occasion where what's at stake is the distinct people of God. Jacob is is confronted with a moment of challenge. Does he marry his daughter who has been raped to Shechem? Does he dilute that family line? Does he enter into relationship with the people around? Does he marry his other sons to their daughters? Does the whole of God's purpose of having a people of his own, does it dissolve by this moment in time? No. But not because Jacob (laughs) held it together. But rather because in this complicated, messy, awful, drastic situation, what we actually see is God saying, I will make you a people who are distinct. Even to the point of you being a people who are distinct because you are hated. That's what Jacob's fearful of. If they, if they, if they gather together, if they unite in, in, in allied forces, uh, the Shechemites and the Perizzites, they will overthrow, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, they will overthrow us. Wouldn't it be easier to just absorb in, to become part of this people? Wouldn't that be the easier, safer, less difficult thing to do? to just allow it to kind of dissolve. And God says, no. (laughs) No, you are to be a distinct people. And when you come back, I'll remind you of this occasion 
which was where you were confronted with the possibility of dissolving into the people of the land. And that principle has always been one of God's purposes amongst His people. To create a people who are distinct. In the Old Testament, it was all, all about a land. It was all about a nation. It was all about political power. <laughs> and then Jesus comes along. And Jesus comes along and He says this. It's no longer about that. That was just a little indication. It was a way of presenting to us the power of right and wrong and the law that God has for this world. It's actually about a people who are committed to me. A people who know me. A people who love me. He says that ultimately that people are those who are the salt of the earth. Those who are the light of the world, we read, we'd looked at a few months ago in Matthew chapter 5. We see that there is a distinct people. A people who continue to, if you like, bear witness to God in this world. That's what we see. Jesus says, that is what you will be. Does that mean, therefore, that we do what perhaps the implications are of God's word to his people in Exodus where we're to keep separate and not get involved uh, and to keep distant. <laughs> you know, one of the wonderful things is what we see in Jesus is somebody who actually immersed himself. He immersed himself in this world. What we see is Jesus who actually eats and drinks and rubs shoulders with the Shechems of this world. Tax collectors and prostitutes is who he engages with. Spends time with them. He becomes this immersed yet distinct individual. He becomes somebody who is in this world and yet distinct from this world. Precisely what he calls his people to be. Immersed in this world yet distinct from this world. Salt and light. Ones who are continuing to proclaim his word, his witness in this world. One final thought. The brothers deliver into this world, uh, deliver into this situation a justice, don't they? It's a horrific justice. It's an overwhelming justice. But it's something that says that sin, something which is abhorrent, is not acceptable. Precisely what Jesus says and does. How does Jesus say that sin is abhorrent 
and will not be accepted. He says it because he actually becomes, in a sense, the victim, if you like, of that justice. He becomes the one who is slaughtered. He becomes the one who actually pays the price. What we, what we see in Shechem is that, the city of Shechem, is that all of those men paid the price for the wrong of one man. What we actually see in Jesus is that one man pays the price for the wrong that is perpetrated by many. In a sense, those who are in some ways innocent pay the price, and the guilty as well. What we see in Jesus is that the innocent pays the price for the guilty. Sin is dealt with. I come to this text, and on the one hand, I'm horrified by it. Horrified by the content. And yet, on the other hand, loving the fact that through this message of God into the world, there is a journey which ultimately brings us to Jesus who resolves this kind of outrage by being the guilt bearer for those who trust and believe in him.